Hey folks, welcome back to Hot Takes on Shoot Side. Bagley, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. I'm I'm a year older, Ferris. Well, that's right. 30 years has hit me like a ton of bricks. So I, I know what you've, you've felt like for multiple years now. It's not good. <laughs> yeah, life comes at you fast, you know. So now that you're uh, getting up there, welcome to the 30 for 30 Club. I think it means I'm wiser. I think so, too. I certainly hope our listeners believe that. There's there's some that would certainly counter that. but uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, based on the feedback that we got on the EPD episode, I don't know if anyone thinks we're wiser. But before we get into that, let's thank our sponsors over there at Showbloom for being the title sponsor of Shootside and Hot Takes. Showbloom is a brewer's yeast supplement, specially made for show animal diets, crafted from premium yeast using the proprietary Emmert method. Showbloom is proven by research to support optimal feed intake and efficiency in animals, so every step they take in the ring is their best. Family-owned and operated, they've served the livestock industry with performance that shines for more than a century. Showbloom can help support digestive tract health and rumen function, palatability of feed, feed intake, even during times of stress, feed efficiency, feed utilization, hair coat and hoof quality, and the list goes on. Rooted in family values like integrity, service, excellence, and husbandry, the sixth generation continues a legacy of animal health. With Emmer and Showbloom, there's a difference you can see. Visit Showbloom.com to learn more about the benefits of Showbloom. Showbloom, we appreciate it. We appreciate your support over the uh, second season here. But let's get into this feedback we got off of last week's. And it's I, I laughed when I saw some of this stuff because... People have been chiming in, and I think you got a direct message, too, that says, uh, you guys are idiots. You don't know anything about the real world, real world cattlemen. I hate to say it, but we told you guys. We've been calling ourselves hammerheads for the last three months. I don't think anywhere in that episode did we we claim to really know anything. It's just a couple of idiots. In fact, that's why we have somebody that has doctor in front of their name come on and like maybe insinuate that we're idiots. So, you know, he doesn't outright say it because he's a friend of ours, but he just insinuates it. And it's like, yeah, that's the point is we are self-admittedly idiots. Yeah. I I don't know if he insinuated at all that we're idiots. I think there were specific points in time that he was making fun of us. John DeClerc was definitely making fun of us. Well, he'll he'll do that openly multiple times, but whether it's uh, insinuation or just outright, I think we, we don't claim to know a lot. We never did, certainly not in that field either, but, you know, still kind of have some opinions, you know, that I, I think a guy can argue either way. I mean, I, I think we've probably both heard feedback of, y'all are idiots, you don't know what you're talking about. And then you get the people who are just like, pumping their fist with you like yeah stick it to the epd people and you're just like yeah i don't even know if that was our intention but let's let's go i will say john was so effective in throwing barbs at us and more so you i think on this episode than he did me he got me on the last time he was on that we did have some listener feedback from hunter soap that said we should do like a segue or like almost like a like a separate type episode of where the clerk just does voiceovers throwing barbs at us. Like we record our regular episode, but then there's like another soundtrack that we add where John just makes fun of the both of us because people really like how crafty he was. We, I don't know if you listen to hooks podcast, but he is like a, an announcer or a, a narrator or something. Uh-huh. It seems like, and maybe we could incorporate something like that where, where John's like our announcer. And he just makes fun of us as we go. What I like the most, though, is John can come on and take shots at us. And then we get to go to the next podcast with him not on and then just take shots back at it at him where he can't defend himself. I, I, I love attacking a defenseless John. It's That's always a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know much about warfare, but I think when you're in the elevated position like we are, it becomes a lot easier to hit your target. Yeah, you, you never want to be the guy punching up, you know? Mm-mm. No, we're definitely punching down with this podcast. But 
some of the feedback we got, I mean, it was mostly from the friends of ours and the listeners of ours that are within the seed stock industry and the commercial industry. And those folks more or less said we are, well, maybe more so you were way off base saying that they're, uh, what was the hot, a crutch for the talentless? A crutch for the talentless. I, I was told that EPDs are a crutch for making money. Uh, and I wouldn't disagree with that. If you know how to use them and, and you implement them correctly. And that obviously, as I said, it's funny. I, I've, I've figured out doing this podcast. My granddad had a long career in, in politics and I am just not cut out for it because I can literally say, hey, guys, I'm about to tell you a joke. I'm about to jokingly say something. Then say EPDs are a crutch for the talentless. Oh, by the way, guys, I- I'm joking. I do understand that there are some very good things about it. And then inevitably somebody's like, wow, can you believe this idiot said that? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I am saying it's a joke. And and, and yeah, they're a crutch for making money. And I-, I thought you said it very well, Ferris, if used correctly. And I think that's what it boils down to. I think some of the issues that I'm getting at is there's a lot of scenarios where they're not used correctly. And I think EPDs are a great tool for the cattleman's tool belt, right? EPDs are a piece of that pie. They're not the entire pie, but they're a piece of that pie, and they are a great tool. But I kind of likened it back, uh, and I think this is the perfect analogy. Our friend John loves using analogies, right? Whether it's a dually pickup or this, that, and the other. But the analogy I've kind of come to is... You know, if you've ever been in a shop class in high school, it's like before you got to use the tools, you had to take a safety test, right? You had to take, well, here's how you use the tool. And because if you don't know how to use it, you'll cut your hand off. And I think that's the same way with EPDs where there's some people that don't know exactly how to use them or maybe don't have a very structured goal in their program of, okay, here's how we're going to retain females. Here's how we're going to get extra money at weaning or, or, or we're going to retain cattle all the way through the feeding phase. So we're going to focus here. What I think that there, some people don't do that. And in that they run into problems in the EPD. And I'll say this, uh, if this tells you why maybe I'm not the biggest fan of EPDs is because when I was in high school, I tried to cut my thumb off in the bandsaw. So clearly, even though I can pass the safety test, I still get in there and may cut my hand off. So I I went to the emergency room in high school after putting my thumb in the bandsaw. So EPDs, if that analogy holds true, EPDs are probably just not for this guy. Yeah, maybe you just don't know how to use them. But I think it it falls on the individual producer to know and understand how and if they want to utilize them in their own operation. Like if, if that's how you're making your living, then you need to figure out how they can be utilized. I don't know anything about EPDs other than I had my full display of knowledge on the last episode. So as the listener can tell, it's not very much, but not to say that I don't find use in them every now and again, obviously I don't make my living on sending a, pounds of cattle to the sale barn. I take a pretty significant pay cut by sending stuff to the sale barn, but they're still utilized when we're trying to pick out some uh, Angus bulls or whatever to breed our first calf heifers to. That's right, Angus listeners. I do uh, breed about every first calf heifer to an Angus, so we don't hate that hard. But, (laughs) you know, I, I think with anything, whether you're in the club calf business, seed stock business, commercial cattle business, it's your job as a producer to understand and use the tools that you have at hand. And if you find value in those EPDs, then great, but understand, and this is more of a personal opinion. And I see this on the genetic side and we touched on it in the last episode that the rest of your management scheme has to be tight. Otherwise you're probably not going to realize the full potential of those numbers and that added data. If you're not taking care of those cattle, they don't have the proper nutrition level, mineral, vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. I don't care how good the EPDs are, or the genetics are in your herd, and John even mentioned it, you're not going to realize the full potential of those cattle. Right. And here's another analogy for our boy John that I think he'd back up, but it's like if 
you know, Michael Phelps was your son and he had all the genetic potential in the world to be the best swimmer in the world, but he didn't have a pool to be in. Like there's a lot of that where there's a lot of genetic potential, but that requires different nutritional standards that requires different health standards. I mean, to reach their genetic potential, there's got to be a lot of good management practice along with it. But I was talking to my good buddy, another PhD, uh, Dr. Clay Morrison, who who also works for... Uh, Burson, ain't it? Yeah, Burson with... Uh, did, I, did I say Morrison? You said Clay, Clay Morrison. I don't think Clay Morrison uh, Clay Morrison's not a PhD. Not a PhD. But yeah, Clay Burson that works for Purina there with John as well and as a nutritionist for them. But he works with an Angus breeder that focuses on a lot of maternal traits, both in what they're seeing phenotypically and then some EPDs as well. And what they've done is, I think, phenomenal in focusing on these traits. And and they're looking, the area that they're in, they're looking for a lower input female, which is what I was talking about. They're not wanting their cow size to grow up to that average cow size of over 1,300 up to 1,400. They're wanting to maintain a smaller cow. And they focused on that. But in focusing on that and improving maternal characteristics, what they've done is they have calves that are born earlier in the calving season. And so when they go to, you know, sell, you know, their their entire calf crop, these cattle are just older because they're not spread out over as spread out over a 60 to 90 day, you know, calving window. And so really they're still weaning off big calves and they're not giving anything up there even though that their cattle in the way they've been selecting for them are really probably in the bottom 25% for just the the weaning type EPDs alone. So really their focus and and now they've keyed in and they know what they want in their cattle and they know how to use those EPDs properly and man they they've hit the best of both worlds, right? They're getting some good money on more of that growth later on, but then they're able to maintain cost, which I think that's a big thing. Being being a banker, I see it whether it's on consumer economics all the way through cattle guys to farm guys. The easiest thing to do is to control how much you spend versus trying to make more money in a lot of cases. So I think that in what the scenario that Clay laid out on this one producer, they've done just that and they've been extremely successful with it. But that's all about using them correctly. And ultimately, I guess what I was trying to get at in the whole deal and probably just did a piss poor job of explaining that, but you have to balance phenotype with genotype. And if at any point you let that get too far away from you, chasing numbers and and chasing EPDs too hard and you can't step away and say, am I mating, you know, good bulls that fit my cow herd? At some point, you're no longer an animal breeder. You're an animal multiplier. And I think it it may not necessarily be the first generation, but sooner or later, you can run into problems. And I think that phenotype's important. And I think the Angus Association admits just as much even in their EPDs because currently they've they've got a couple of EPDs that are based on phenotype. They've got a foot a foot angle EPD and they've got a claw set EPD, which is kind of talking about their toes. But I mean, they've got EPDs that are looking at potential problems in phenotype, right? So now that's something that you and I look at all the time, right? I mean, we're Mm -hmm. we're looking more at phenotype, you know, and that's what we're making a lot of our selection decisions on. And we make progression by doing that. I mean, that's a big part of what we do, but it needs to be a big part of a commercial guy or a seed stock guy. And I think that's what I was getting at. And I don't want it to be interpreted wrong where it's like, oh, EPDs are are, are totally worthless. Like, no, I know they're not. It's just, I think it's a, it's a cautionary tale where it's like, don't lose sight of phenotype. And the best producers, which the input that I got on Instagram brought up some of that and brought up, you know, some of the good guys, Jay Stowater brought up some things to us and brought up that, you know, some of the the best guys in the business do focus still on phenotype. And that comes as no surprise to me. And some of them were ones we mentioned on the, on the podcast, but 
I think that that's what's important, and that's what I'm trying to get at, is that you cannot lose sight of phenotype, because at some point, it will jump up and bite you, you know? So, for all the people coming at me with torches, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, and to build on the discussion that you had with Dr. Burson, that's management. I mean, getting all those cattle bred up and calved in a tight window, I mean, that's combining data with management. And I think that there's a lot of value there. And I, and I think if you look at successful operations, regardless of their sector, it's good data combined with good management. Yeah. I think you've even brought this up on the podcast before. You do quite a bit of looking at your recips, don't you? And, you know, if they've taken an egg and, and, and you do a lot of that. You're not doing EPDs, but you're using data to make good decisions. And you can do that in your club calf deal, too. I, I mean, there are there are ways. You may have to get more creative, and there may not just be a table of EPDs laid out for you. And some of it's going to be anecdotal. You know, this recip doesn't milk. You've discussed it before. Do we need to keep her around? Literally, her job is strictly to milk this club calf, and she's not getting that job done. It's like, she needs to go. And and I think you've talked about that. So it's really using that data as a management tool, however you you know choose to do so. No, I agree. I think you have to know. It's your job to know your cattle. It's your job to know your business. It's your job to know your operation. So use the data. Use the tools available. I did get a couple comments that I don't know if I really would agree with these, and I don't dis completely disagree with these things often, but I did get some along the lines of, hey, why are you guys talking about EPDs? You're a couple of hammerheads, which we've already established. I'll say it again. We've already established that. But there were more along the lines of, hey, you guys need to stay in your lane. And I guess my point of contention with that is if people always just stayed in their lane then there's never any progress made. And the what I like so much about the EPD discussion is I would venture to say, you know, as, as some of our commercial cattlemen and seed stock listeners are coming with torches to uh, Stratford, Texas to get Bagley, I think there's probably a great majority of people in the show cattle industry that don't care at all for EPDs, don't understand them, don't want to know them, think they're totally useless. I think there was probably a greater number of people that were on your side than there were on the value of EPDs within the cross-section of our listeners. And I think it gets back to the point of why we do these is to create discussion, which we're having now, create a discussion and kind of a, a platform and a module to have these discussions about things we don't know about. If we're supposed to stay in our lane, then there would never be a shoot side podcast because I can guarantee you that neither of us knew anything about doing a podcast before we started this. Or yeah, I would never have show steers or have club calf cows because I didn't know the first thing about raising a show steer when I first started this. I totally got outside my lane multiple times. Yeah. Well, and I think it brings up the point, too, of, you know, staying in our lane. It's like, what's our lane and how much podcast material could we generate off of our lane? Like, mine would be Raising Champion Lightweights. Yours would be Troubadour. And then, I mean, we could have a couple <laughs> episodes about that. And then it's like, well, the, now we're done with our lane, I guess, because that's the extent of, of maybe what we know. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's about creating a discussion and letting people kind of make that decision for themselves. It's opening that door up. I mean, it's opening up Pandora's box. And if you don't like EPDs, like you probably weren't swayed by John there. If you do like EPDs, you certainly weren't swayed by me there. So, I mean, but I think maybe if there's somebody there in the middle or there's people who just want to kind of learn because they want to see, hey, is this something that could help me? I think that's what we're we're presenting an opportunity a little bit to just, hey, maybe it's opportunity to learn. Yeah. If anything, maybe you walked away with it understanding why at some of these open shows, maybe like the Green Bark there in Louisville, why they give the judges the EPD sheet and 
let them have their discretion of whether they're going to use them or not, or recommend, you know, using them or don't. But with that said, that's more or less the uh, feedback we had from last week. Should we go? We have kind of two topics, two hot takes to cover this week. Yeah. So one that, you know, we've kind of come up with on our own is it's a tale as old as time, a debate old as time, common versus complete. And if you've ever judged livestock, you've had this debate with people on your team or your or your judging coach. You've heard it at shows. That one's the most complete. And so that's kind of the debate is where do we Troll the line, and how do we decide what's common versus complete? Ferris, what what are your thoughts when you know you hear the word complete? To me, complete is fault free. So we've heard before, and I think he said on the episode, did Callus say that common and complete are first cousins, or am I? Or is that something he told me off air? He has certainly said that because I have heard him say that i don't know if he said that on the podcast i can't remember hopefully we're not letting the cat out of the bag but complete to me is something that is fault free and doesn't have any major major flaws i mean of course none of them are perfect but i think in our business everything is so subjective that the perfect one in my mind is a different one than what you consider perfect and different one than each listener we have has a different vision in their mind on what is is the perfect and complete one. But I think everything is relative to probably, wouldn't you say it's relative to level of competition? Because a complete one at the county fair level is probably different than the complete one at Kansas City. Right. I would totally, totally agree. And it is kind of it's relative to what else is around you. You know, I, I think you you talk about one being complete, like you mentioned at the county fair, right? That one's complete and he ought to win. And then you plug him into Kansas City or something, he's no longer complete. He's now common. He's not good enough to win at that point. I do think it, it is kind of what's around you. That's certainly a big part of it. I guess sometimes where I have problems I think I see it sometimes in the heifering a little bit because I would say, and I think some of it's good, they probably do try to stay a little bit more in the middle, right? And they don't push the things that we push, right? Sometimes we push things to the edge. Now, in doing that, I think that, again, my opinion will have people coming after me on this, but I think at the end of the day, the some of the club calves that win, those are the best cattle in the country. That's like the best creature that is walking on planet Earth in in the cattle business. Uh, and not everyone that wins, so don't throw one out at me that is at one least that the somebody hardest didn't one like to make. With. Right, exactly. And and to me, it's like that comes from probably pushing the boundaries, pushing the edge a little bit. And I think what results oftentimes at the top of of the premier shows in the country is just some of the the best animals are there are. I think sometimes show heifers, they try to keep a more middle ground, which is not a bad thing when you consider putting females into production, keeping that middle ground and keeping one a little bit more quote unquote complete. But sometimes I do think that gets pushed a little bit far. And to bring him up again, Callus, who's mentioned, you know, the donor in third before, and we've talked about that. But there are some times where we don't recognize cattle for their qualities. We nitpick them in their little things. And then we beat one and we say, well, they're fault-free, right? And to me, my argument becomes their fault is they don't bring anything spectacular to the table. And, and I think that's sometimes where I make that distinction. It's like, well, yeah, you don't really do anything bad, but you also don't really do anything that good either. And so. I think that's the problem sometimes I have when we do label one complete. I'd agree with you. And I think you hit on something that I was going to bring up, which is you see in the difference of approaches when you have these folks out there evaluating cattle, the guys and girls that are out there finding like these ones that ride that line that we're talking about, whether it's in a pasture setting, whether it's in a show ring, 
they're out there nitpicking. It's almost like um, which one is bringing me the least problems, or where you know, it's like a tally sheet rather than hey, which one of them has the best combination of pieces? What brings the most? Now that doesn't mean that we should, and we talk about a lot, single trait selection, like which one has the biggest bones or the biggest belly or anything like that, because I'm not really about that life either. But I like to think things in terms of relativity and within the group of people that we chat amongst, I know it's come up of structure relative to power. A lot of times you see guys go out there, which one has the least problem structurally? Well, that one, you know, they point to one. Well, that one also doesn't have any muscle. So that one should be really sound. Which one is the best structured relative to the amount of power they have? That's how I like to look at cattle personally is when they bring attributes, positive attributes to the table that are hard to put together. Like which one is bold ribbed and deep bodied? It's hard to do both. Which one is extremely heavy muscled, but still sound and smooth. We could all agree that those three things together are hard to do. Is he the soundest one? No. Is he the widest one? No. And then that's where you start to see the conversation shift towards complete, right? Because we're if they can do multiple things good, then we're getting complete. But they also have to have, in my opinion, as the competition rises, they have to have those bigger pieces too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. As as the competition rises, I mean, and when you get to that level, like you know, I, I think about the steer of Avon Horns that that won Fort Worth two years ago. Well, that's as complete of an animal as you can make. I mean, that one is, in a lot of respects, fault free. But that one also brings some awesome pieces to the table too. You know, and and when you can do that on a fault free type of build. Yeah, now you've really hit something. But guess what? That's the grand champion of Fort Worth. That's not, you can't just always expect to go feed one like that. That That's a unique creature. And there is that distinction as far as whenever you get to the highest levels, they've got to have, they've got to have some cool pieces to stand out. And sometimes those cool pieces may slightly hamper them in a way or two. And I think sometimes I find this, and, and I'd, I'd be curious what your thoughts are, Ferris, but in our own herd, on the female side of things, sometimes I struggle figuring out how to mate a female that I would probably consider complete. I look at her and I'm like, okay, well, like, what's wrong with her? And it's like, it's nothing big, right? Like, it, th- there's no, like, is she a little plainer fronted? Maybe, but not bad. Or like, you know, is she a little this or that? Or yeah, but not not bad. And she's just kind of that middle of the road and she's she's nice. There'd be some people who come in and maybe think that was one of your better ones. But I always struggle with how to make the mating decision on her because like I, I have a better time when I can clearly identify, okay, here's like a distinct issue. I like all the other pieces you've got, but here's an issue that I want to fix. Now I want to find a bull that can fix some of those things. And and I always feel a little bit more comfort in that than I do. Here's this complete animal. Now what do I do? Well, I think that's why a lot of times that you'll see, I'm going to flip the genders on you and let's talk about bulls. A lot of the bulls that people fall in love with, like in Denver, that are super complete, that look like maybe the steer that won Denver, you know, or the steer that won Denver the following week. Like, boy, that one just didn't have any problems. A lot of times those ones don't breed maybe as good cattle as the ones that have big pieces. If you think back at some of maybe the most popular bulls, and we're not going to get into name and names, but some of the most popular bulls in the last few years, they have things that you love about them and things you despise about them. And Colby Collins, when I used to work for him, and I bring him up because I believe his episode is coming out following this one and it's not something that we talked about necessarily on that episode but it's something that he used to tell me is oftentimes the best producing cows your best donor cows they they have to complement a bull and you will have things about those cows that you absolutely love and there's things about those cows that you absolutely do not like and i can 
speak anecdotally about the cows that I have that have generated either the bigger winners that I've had or the higher selling calves that I've had, the more popular cattle that I've had, they all have things that I love about them and things that I can't stand about them. And, but when you find the right complement on the sire side and get them synced up right, it works like magic. But they're not the complete cows by any stretch of the imagination. I'd like to hearken like back to a previous episode, and maybe what we should be looking at more is almost the way Bob May said it, which is the combination calf. Because that's not common, that's not complete, and it kind of, I think it almost dovetails into what we're talking about, which is which ones can do multiple things good together that are difficult to do. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think what you said in regards to those donor females, I, I see it, I see it all the time. I mean, things that I don't like, but man, if I can find a bull that can fix that, I mean, that's where we've hit on some of our best matings is is bulls that that fix the issues of of whatever donor and then you know the donor bring in some of the rest. And and I totally agree on the bull thing too, where there's bulls every year that you see in Denver or somewhere else that are awfully complete. And I do think those bulls can work too. Maybe it is on a cow that's like, you know, I kept that one back almost like, oh, you know, almost maybe shouldn't have, right? Like she's got this problem and she just, and like maybe those bulls sometimes get underutilized in some situations where, you know, there's like a female that just needs to be reeled back a touch in some ways. You, you, you were chasing pieces in the way you kept her. And if you chase pieces again in these bulls that maybe are winning all the things, like, you may result in finding the worst of both animals, which we've probably both oh, seen yeah. happen before too, where yeah. you're like in my pasture. Yeah. I I've somehow like got the worst of her and the worst of him in the next generation. So some of those bulls, it's like, it, it's kind of more just identifying some of those bulls for what they are and the cows for what they are and mating them based on that. But, but yeah, I, I don't know if we should cover what we think is, is common. I guess I kind of hinted on it earlier where, you know, I just say there's just some times where being fault free is kind of the fault. It's like we didn't push anything, right? And we didn't push stoutness of skeleton or we didn't push, you know, skeletal width or muscle. We didn't push a uh, look or we didn't do some of those things where, you know, we really tried to correct that in the next generation. And we've ultimately ended with an animal that's like, ah, yeah, like I guess nothing's wrong with them, but, but they also bring nothing to the table and that's what's wrong with them. I agree. As you, to me, it's, it's on the scale of quality because a really good feedlot steer would be considered complete, right? He's sound. He's probably got some stoutness of feature. He's probably got some muscle. He probably balances. Okay. But he's common. And as, as the competition increases, so, so does the quality. And I think maybe what we're getting at is sometimes in, we're over when we're riding that line, quality gets overlooked and we're just checking boxes. Well, does he do this and does he do that? Does he do this? Does she do this or do that? Yeah. So that one, that one doesn't have any problems. But generally speaking, maybe they don't have, they're not the highest quality animal available either to purchase to breed on to use it or show whatever right. the situation is yeah and and i think if you're judging my i guess input on that is that sometimes if you think there's a higher quality one down there don't necessarily be be scared to use that one i think that sometimes people get a little bit scared of one like it's like, oh, that one's that one's a little out there. That one's got some really cool things, and almost like oh, I'm scared what to do. I mean, what are what are people gonna think if I go using that one? It's like, well, but what do you think? That's what they hired you to do, and if you think that's the highest quality one, and that maybe offers the most to the next generation, it's like, oh, that's maybe one that should be at the top. 
as opposed to being like, oh, here's kind of my safe bet because, you know, it's the complete one. And if somebody is to call me on anything, I can just kind of be like, well, what's wrong with her? And I, I think sometimes there's that safety in quote unquote complete. And sometimes it's it's at the detriment of, of a quality animal that's in second or third place because we can't just highlight and admit, okay, this one's got an issue, but I don't think it's a, a massive issue. And look at all the stuff you get by accepting this small issue. And that's all you got to try and really correct in the next generation is find another, find a, uh, another, a bull that can still complement all the good that this one has and maybe try and correct that one small thing. I mean, I think that's a mindset a lot of people could take into the show ring and, and select some good stock. But you want to get into the uh, the second one a little bit, Ferris? Yeah. What is the second hot take for the and it dovetails into what we kind of discovered almost? Yeah. So a listener sent us a, a message on Instagram, and it's Kaylee is her name. And uh, she kind of just brings up, generally speaking, is price an indicator of quality, uh, I guess. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing and, and not giving it the total justice it probably deserves. But her, her story is, is basically like, okay, you know, my family has this pretty strict budget and, and we don't buy a lot of high dollar cattle. We're in that 2000 to 3000 ish range. And yet, you know, we, we know some other people and their budgets higher six or $7,000. And yet we, we feel like we can kind of consistently beat those people. So it's like, well, they're paying more. So, but at the end of the day, you know, maybe we've got the higher quality stock. So what's the issue there? Now, I think you can kind of talk about this in a few different ways, maybe as a buyer, as a seller, but I thought it's an interesting topic to kind of bring up. Yeah. I mean, I think at certain levels, price does, it's certainly correlated to quality, right? If it wasn't, then they would all cost the same. I mean, there's a reason why some of them bring more than others. And generally speaking, that's quality, the opinion of quality to somebody, you know, the seller and the and or yeah. the buyer or a couple buyers or bidders. I mean, there's a reason why some of these cattle bring a lot, and there's a reason why some of these don't bring much. I don't think, though, that sale price is the ultimate dictator of quality. It is an indication of someone's opinion of quality on the sale day, but it doesn't really have anything to do with what those cattle will or won't do down the road, in my opinion, to a certain extent. Generally right. speaking, there's probably a lot less $1,200 show steers winning majors than five-figure show steers. Just a hunch. Yeah. No, I, absolutely. I totally agree. And I guess where I see this sometimes is it, it all depends on the person that's buying them. I mean, if they can go find stuff, there are deals Every night on any of these online sales, you see, you've got cattle you sell that you know when they leave the place at that price, that's a hell of a deal. I've seen it before on our end too. And then I think sometimes too, on the lower price cattle, and if that is your budget, right, I think there is something where you have to understand what you're buying and at what price point you're buying it. And... I think there's two things that can kind of happen in that price range. You are going to be accepting some kind of flaw, whether that's, oh, you know, maybe structurally they're just not right. Like they're wound a little bit tighter. You know, you've seen them before where it's like, man, that one's stout. He's big boned. You know, he's got plenty of muscle. He's just a little tighter wound and doesn't move exactly how I want him to see. Well, those are cattle that oftentimes can fall down into that price range, right? Because they have that flaw. Or, you know, we've we've seen it before where it's a skinny one, right? Like mm -hmm. it's like, God, this thing's just got like no belly. He's just, he's skinny. And sometimes it's, well, you know, he was sick or he was whatever. But you're going to be accepting some sort of flaw. Or on the other side of that, in that same price range, maybe you get into what we were just talking about, which is 
a kind of a complete versus common area where sometimes you can find them where it's like, man, he doesn't really do anything spectacular, but he's like, he's a sound structured, easy doing one. And then I think what happens in that price range a lot of times falls almost strictly to management. One, it's accepting the problem and being okay with that, not being, you know, not being blind to the issue at hand and then managing that animal from that point forward. If it's structure, then you probably need to reel that thing back as quick as you can, you know, and not push it because, you know, you're going to push that skeleton too far, right? And regardless of what that is, it, you've got to accept, okay, there's is, there's more issues than there is at the $10,000 mark. And th- now we're making generalizations, but but there probably is. And your management at that point can make a ton of difference on your endpoint success. Yeah, I think you make a lot of good points. And in the episode that dropped last week, when we had Bodie Schliff on, we talked about balling out on a budget and buying those cheaper cattle. And it was brought up about sometimes those less expensive cattle. I like to consider them lottery tickets at times, because like you said, sometimes they have some flaws that we can work on with management. A lot of times those cattle are just skinnier too. Those high quality calves that bring reasonable amounts, they're skinnier. And there's certain people, and Colby brought it up on next week's episode, there's some people that are really good at reading skinny cattle, and it's almost just a little bit of a talent. But I think the more that I think and listening to you speak on the subject, and my wheels are kind of turning, I've never thought about it this way, but maybe price is more of an indication of the risk on that certain calf more so than than it is quality, or at least it's another factor in it. For example, when folks are giving, you know, five figures for calves, that's saying, hey, this calf, we can, A, a fatter, hairier calf, you can kind of tell a little bit better a lot of times what they are. There's less guesswork in it. I feel less risky about this calf going out and have success because I have a better idea what he is versus maybe one that's got a couple flaws that need to be fixed through management or uh, he's skinny. Hey, I'm not as confident that this calf is going to be whatever I think he could be. So I'm going to pay a little bit less for him because he's going to have to do some things right. And I think some of that comes with self-awareness. There's certain people out there that are very confident to buy those cheaper, skinnier calves and get along really good. Heck, one of my favorite ones that I ever had, heifers, was one that we bought very, very, very reasonably. But it's not; she wasn't probably ever in the body condition that we would have given much more than what she was because she did have to do some things right, and she did, you know? But they're lottery tickets a lot of times, those more inexpensive ones, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I think you're totally right the risk assessment is probably exactly an indication of it. And as you go up, yeah, you're, it's probably a little bit less risky, but I think also in the same respect, a lot of high dollar cattle, like they are set for a certain probably endpoint, whether it's whatever class they're going to be in at the end, they're kind of that right size and right kind to be in the heat at the end. So, Although you have a good calf at the end, like sometimes it doesn't change the fact that you're sixth place in class 11 at Fort Worth. You know what I mean? So so the risk is still there in that sense. You have a good calf, you may just not be as rewarded for it because you're in such a tough spot of the show. But I think at the end of the day, those cattle obviously are typically just the better ones. But I thought you brought up a good point too. And and you and I have talked about this off the podcast before, but a lot of times that price is just, is somebody's opinion. And there's a lot of times I disagree with that person's opinion because I'm like, whoa, would not have given that much for that one. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so I think there's that element too, where it's like, well, but that guy thought he's good. And there's sometimes that guy's right and I'm wrong. And there's sometimes I'm right and he's wrong. But that is what the price is. And and you and Fitz talked about it, you know, on, on the podcast about different ways of selling them. But, you know, on the online sale, I kind of like a little bit of the 
transparency of it. And I like that it's just like, okay, like that is the public perception tonight of like what that calf is worth, right? And, but credit to the people like that always do private treaty. Like I, I just could never do it. I just know I couldn't. I, I couldn't. I think I would be a piss poor steer jock too, because I have a hard time of assessing one's quality and putting a dollar value to it, whether that's me buying them or selling them. I want to just open this up and y'all tell me what they're worth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to say because I get partial, you know, and I grew up too. I didn't show the best ones, right? We were in the state of Texas and we were, we were all about making the sale, you know, making the sale and doing that year in and year out. Well, that's the mindset I've got is that like the budget's not always the biggest. And so like, I, I try to find a little bit of value and like, sometimes that doesn't work. Like that mindset doesn't work. You, if you're trying to find the best one, he's probably going to cost more and you've got to be able to assess that as you look at them. And that's just something that personally I kind of struggle with. I like the, I like the open format to just let the public decide, you know? No, I I'm with you there. And as someone that sells them privately and someone and has online sales and does, does it each way, it's harder for me to determine what they're worth. Sometimes it's a lot easier just to put them on the sale because that is what, that is what the market dictates, no doubt. But I think in summary, like we kind of talked, price doesn't always indicate quality. Price indicates an opinion of quality amongst a select group of individuals. At least two people. Yeah. The person buying it and the person selling it. And the next closest opinion of value is probably the contending bidder if it was a bid-off or a sale situation. And then there's a risk factor associated with it. Obviously, the higher one brings, the more confident someone was that that one is going to go do something successful at any one given point in time. But I think to go out and say, yeah, that calf costs $100,000, so he's really good, is a non-starter for me. The same as saying, well, that calf only costs $1,500. There's no way he's any good. Also a non-starter for me. To me, I like to look at them and make my own opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I meant to bring this up earlier when you talked about risk, but there's a family in Texas and I don't know them well. And it's just like things you hear from, you know, through the grapevine. But Shane Meyer and his two boys have had, I mean, unbelievable excess in the show ring. And I have heard this on multiple occasions enough, and I've got no clue how many steers they've put on feed when there was both of the boys were showing. I know one's graduated now, but I don't know how many they put on feed or what kind of budget they had. A guy would assume it's a pretty good budget for the success that they had. But I heard on multiple occasions like, yeah, you know, I heard Shane bought that one real cheap. I mean, dirt cheap. And what that ended up being was like a tremendous home. And they took cattle that had a little bit of risk. I would even identify one they had last year that wins the Red Crosses, I believe, or was Reserve Red Cross at San Antonio this last year. And he was a Hereford marked. Obviously, we're talking about Texas here, still a, a crossbred steer, but was a Hereford marked steer. And that was one that I, you know, I heard through the grapevine. Oh, you know, they didn't have to give a bunch of money for that one necessarily. But it's like, well, they took the risk. They assumed the risk of saying, well, this is a Hereford marked one. But like, I don't think he's going to classify Hereford, but he's so good. This one can compete in the Red Crosses. Well, there's a, probably a lot of people that overlooked that animal saying, oh, you know, I mean, he's not going to classify. And it's like, but the mindset of like, oh, yeah, well, uh, that doesn't matter because we're going to show him as a Red Cross and he's that good. And he was. So, you know, I, I think and whether that's like ones that we talked about that are skinny, it's like. When you're selling them, it's painful to see those like skinny ones that you know are good, and you're just like, "Golly, if this can, if this one can go to a good family, he will be good." Like I know the way he's bred, and sometimes I'd say that's that's listening to the guy that's selling them to you. If that's a guy that you trust, 
you know, and, and you're putting your faith in, I think a lot of times that person can kind of steer you in the right direction and say, look, if you want me to be honest with you, like, I'll tell you the flaws of this animal and I'll tell you maybe a strategy and management, but I do think this animal can be good in the end. I, I think relying on your sources there, I think you can get a lot of quality at a pretty cheap price sometimes. Yeah. And I think if you're going, and we talked about it, I think it, with the episode, with Bodie, but if you're going to go out there and be like several of these families that do buy those cost-effective cattle and have a tremendous amount of success like the Meyer family, your management needs to be on point. Like You have to understand that you have to pick up ground by good, solid management and a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably the consensus on that family is there's probably very few families that are even in the same league in terms of management and work. But yeah, that's a great strategy to take if you're ready to accept the work. There are deals to be had out there, no doubt, because how did you phrase it there, Ferris? You said price is an indicator of quality. Quality is not an indicator of price. Am I saying that backwards? Uh, I don't really know. We might need to rewind it. You know you know what we're getting at there is price doesn't always determine quality. And if you go out there and you can hunt for those and then you can obviously recognize their flaws and manage around it, I think you can be really successful. And I think that's what the listener brought up to us is that's what they're doing, you know? And so for them, price hasn't been always the best indicator of quality but maybe they're outworking them too. So they're buying the right kind and they're outworking families. And that's a testament to them. Yeah, kudos to them. I think that's about all the time we have today. Keep sending in your submissions, shootsidepodcast at gmail.com, shootsidepodcast on basically all social media now except TikTok. That may be coming at some point. Who knows? Well, if uh, anyone is familiar with my dance moves, they won't want me on TikTok because it's pretty poor. Uh, I think you're a savage, Ferris. (laughs) I can hit the whip. I can hit the whip. (laughs) But uh, we've said it, I think, in the last episode. Season finale is coming up soon here in about 30 days. Anything you guys want us to cut up, talk about, send it in long topics, short topics. Some of these uh, we've kind of been cataloging because we can't make a whole episode out of them, but we will have discussions on a variety of different things to kind of wrap up season two. So send those in. And if you like what you're hearing, uh, give us a review and a, uh, hopefully a five-star rating on your favorite listening platform. We'd appreciate that. But until next time, thank you guys for listening and we'll talk to you here in a couple weeks. <laughs>